New York Times best-selling author, journalist, and UT torchbearer Wendell Potter has covered Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court. After a long career in health insurance public relations, he had a crisis of conscience and blew the whistle on a corrupt industry in his book, Deadly Spin. His latest book is Nation on the Take. As part of the Knox County Public Library's Truth and Consequences Symposium, Potter's presentation is entitled Fake News, Profit-Driven Media, and Confirmation Bias. I'm Wendell Potter, and I uh, am a Tennessean by, uh, I can't say by birth, but I grew up here, uh, and I'm so proud of being a Tennessean that I actually have it tattooed on my wrist here. Uh, I haven't lived here in a while. I moved away, and I took uh, uh, advantage of job offers that took me to Philadelphia. Uh, I was a journalist in my first career. I graduated from the University of Tennessee. Uh, going through the College of Communications and with an emphasis in, in journalism. Went from here to Memphis, where I was a reporter there for a few years, and I had a chance then to, to cover the Tennessee legislature and the, the governor's office for a few years. And I got really lucky by being sent, I guess you'd say that, uh, to Washington to uh, cover Congress and the White House and the Supreme Court for Scripps Howard newspapers. And I also wrote a, had a, a chance to write a, a column or an analysis every weekend about what was going on in uh, in Washington, in particular for uh, uh, for Tennessee readers. Uh, so I uh, reported during the week, and at the end of the week, I would try to write something that pulled the events together in some kind of an analysis piece to help people have a better understanding of the context of of what was going on. I had a longer career, though, in uh, in corporate public relations. I worked here uh, in my first real. PR job, I guess you'd say, for a, a company. I was briefly a partner in a small PR firm in Atlanta, but I came back to Knoxville and, and headed PR uh, and advertising for what was the Baptist Health System of East Tennessee. From there, I was recruited to Humana and moved to Louisville and served uh, in the communications capacity for that company and rose up to be head of communications, and then I was recruited uh, by Cigna. And I had a longer tenure at Cigna. I was there almost 15 years, first in their offices in Connecticut, and then most of the time in Philadelphia, where the corporate office was. And I was promoted to uh, head of corporate communications. I uh, uh, worked very closely with the CEO and all the senior leaders of the company, handled uh, financial communications for the company. I dealt with reporters on a daily basis, and I also uh, worked with uh, our trade association in Washington. So I, even though I was based in Philly, I spent a lot of time in New York and a lot of time in Washington. But it was uh, a trip back home to Tennessee that uh, uh, really kind of rocked my world when I came back to visit family in 2007. And I'm not going to dwell on this because I spoke about it last night. But it was a pivotal moment because uh, I had come to realize that what I was doing for a living didn't seem to be right for me. Uh, even though I had spent uh, had a longer career in PR, I uh, felt that I was supposed to be a reporter. I ultimately left my job a few months after visiting Remote Area Medical's expedition up in Wise County, which uh, I came when I saw that, I realized that I was part of the problem that the job that I was doing uh, for my company and, and in the, my industry uh, was in some way making it necessary for people uh, to stand in line to get care in barns and animal stalls. And I realized that uh, I was lucky I could have been one of those people because I knew that a lot of those people grew up and, and still lived in uh, areas very close to where I grew up. 
and it led to a crisis of conscience. And I, a few months later, left my job. And I had been doing a different kind of work, and I'm returning to journalism. I did that some time ago, and I've been able to be able to write books. I've uh, written hundreds of columns and commentaries. And I'm going to be starting a new journalism organization uh, later this year called Tarbell.org, which I'll touch on a bit at the end of, of my talk. Today, though, the title of my talk is Fake News, Profit-Driven Media, and Confirmation Bias. Now, I often like to start with the end in mind, and so I'm going to start with the end of that title, Confirmation Bias, which is kind of a, a fancy term for something that affects every single one of us. Oxford Dictionary defines confirmation bias as the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the news is factual for it to confirm your beliefs and opinions. Again, we're all guilty of it or uh, susceptible to it. I certainly am. I'll admit to a bias of my own. I've been fortunate to be interviewed by a lot of reporters and, and have had a chance to be on a lot of TV news programs. I've been interviewed uh, by Fox and CNN and, and MSNBC. And I've been on all those programs, but uh, more often on MSNBC, and I've gotten to know a lot of the host of those shows. So I kind of default to watching MSNBC more than I do other networks, although I try to make sure that I'm keeping up on what the other cable networks are, are doing, what people are saying. But that, of course, if I, you spend more time in one place, confirmation bias kind of sets in. It influences how I think and how all of us think. One of the things that has happened in our democracy in recent years because of the prevalence of cable news channels and the Internet, we're able to self-select where we get our news and information. Uh, we may be uh, watching nothing but Fox News. We may only go to news sites on the Internet that reinforce our worldview. And that puts us in an echo chamber. And that, I think, has been a big problem. Uh, when I was a reporter starting in the, in the 70s, there was no Internet. And there was not even a CNN that I can remember. I've forgotten what year that was started, but it certainly wasn't, wasn't prevalent. I didn't even have a cell phone. People would watch Walter Cronkite, and uh, almost everyone that seemed that I knew subscribed to the hometown newspaper, and, and I was very proud to be a newspaper reporter. But the world has changed so much, um, so we've lost that. Fake news is a relatively new term that uh, has been in circulation, and everyone talks about it these days, but it's only been around and widely used for not even a year, and it certainly gained traction during the last presidential election when Mark Zuckerberg uh, wrote a post on his Facebook account. Mark Zuckerberg is a founder, as you probably know, of Facebook. Facebook was getting criticism for uh, not paying much attention to fake news that was uh, appearing on Facebook, or hoaxes, as he, as he called it. This is from November of 2016. And after this appeared was when the term really went viral, and it became really part of our vocabulary. I want to share some thoughts on Facebook and the election. Our goal is to give every person a voice. We believe deeply in people, assuming that people understand what is important in their lives and they can express those views has driven not only our community, but democracy overall. Sometimes when people use their voice, though they say things that seem wrong and they support people you disagree with. After the election, many people are asking whether fake news contributed to the result and what our responsibility is to prevent fake news from spreading. 
These are very important questions, and I care deeply about getting them right. I want to do my best to explain what we know here. Of all the content on Facebook, more than 99% of what people see is authentic. Only a very small amount is fake news and hoaxes. The hoaxes that do exist are not limited to one partisan view or even to politics. Overall, this makes it extremely unlikely that hoaxes change the outcome of the election in one direction or the other. That said, we don't want any hoaxes on Facebook. Our goal is to show people the content they will find most meaningful, and people want accurate news. We've already launched work enabling our community to flag hoaxes and fake news, and there is more we can do here. We have made progress, and we will continue to work on this to improve further. Uh, and I'll touch in a moment on what Facebook has done to try to address this. But as I said earlier, this is a, a new term for something that has uh, been around for a long time, and it's another term for it is propaganda and persuasion. People have lied to influence public opinion for many, many, many years, for decades, for centuries, or I guess as long as we've been able to use language. We've tried to get people to believe things, and often we will tell lies purposely to get people to think and act and, and ultimately to vote in certain ways. So it's not new. What is makes it so urgent to address and so insidious is the ability to spread lies and misinformation so quickly and so broadly today through social media that Facebook in particular certainly has a, a huge obligation to try to make sure that uh, people are uh, aware of information that appears on Facebook uh, that's not accurate. You know, that's not an easy thing to do because sometimes uh, what is posted might be Opinion It might be uh, misleading, but not necessarily outright false. So it's, there's a big gray area. And sometimes it is just persuasion. One of the things that Facebook has done is to, they've hired, they've partnered with a number of organizations to try to, to help here. Facebook announced um, in April that it had partnered with fact checkers in the U.S. and in Europe as well, too, and abroad. Here in the U.S., they're working with uh, Snopes and PolitiFact to try to uh, determine what is fraudulent, what's, what's a hoax and what's not. This is from um, Fortune from earlier this year. Despite the challenge ahead, Zuckerberg remains undaunted. In an interview with Fast Company, he addressed the boom of falsities on the social network and provided an example of how he plans to approach the issue. Uh, when asked about his reaction to the spread of fake news, Zuckerberg drew a comparison to the way Facebook in years past rooted out overly sensationalized stories, also known as clickbait. And I'll touch on that a bit later on, too, which is an initiative he generally deemed a success. In Zuckerberg's view, according to Fast Company, tackling clickbait required a rejiggering of the site's algorithms uh, as assisted by users' input. The solution is similar to the approach the site is now taking to improve the situation around, quote, information diversity or misinformation on building common ground, euphemisms for the most popular conceptions of filter bubbles, fake news, and echo chambers. Fake news is not going to 100%, but it's a much smaller problem than it used to be. Zuckerberg said. Ironically, one could regard fake news and misinformation as varieties of clickbait, albeit ones demonstrating an even more cavalier disregard for truth. Each preys on people's biases, again, confirmation bias, with specious content and propaganda, usually for financial or political reasons. So why do people believe fake news? 
how is it successful? And Zuckerberg said he didn't think that it uh, had a real effect on the election. We'll probably never know. But there's no doubt that it can be very effective, considering confirmation bias. There was a piece that was published um, in May on uh, how can you get people to believe fake news. And if you want people to believe fake news, you have to post it in a way that sounds somewhat plausible. But not only that, you have to figure out how to repeat that so that more people see it uh, and that people see it more frequently. Familiarity influences the spreading of fake news online. This is according to a, a recent study from Yale University. The study analyzed highly implausible and partisan fake news headlines that were spread online in recent months. Fake news headlines which are familiar are in fact perceived as substantially more accurate and in a potential blow towards the current push for improving labeling of fake or questionable articles, the researchers also found that the labeling of fake news did not deter its believability. What is most disturbing, the researchers found, that familiar fake news was rated as more accurate than unfamiliar real news. Uh, Unfortunately, this creates a perverse incentive for unscrupulous characters to repeat outrageous claims. If you're a politician looking to spread a lie, all you need to do is repeat it over and over. Um, There were some examples of uh, fake news that was spread like wildfire during the election. One, you probably, you may have heard of all three of these. Uh, one, Pope Francis shocks world, endorses Donald Trump for president, <laughs> releases statement. Uh, FBI Director Comey just proved his bias by putting a Trump sign on his front yard. <laughs> FBI agent uh, suspected in Hillary email leaks uh, found dead in apparent murder-suicide. A lot of people believe that. The researchers found that the repetition of knowingly false headlines, such as the ones listed above, correlate with increases in perceived accuracy. This on top of earlier reports showing that fake news outperformed real news on Facebook in the run-up of the U.S. election showcases why fake news is incredibly difficult to stamp out. We seem to be incredibly poor at sifting discredited content from reliable information. This research proves once again the importance of media literacy education, and I couldn't agree more. So why do people believe fake news? Why do they ignore facts and and believe false news? Dr. Michael Sherman is the author of the book Why People Believe Weird Things. Uh, He's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and he wrote this recently. Uh, The new year has brought us the apparently new phenomenon of fake news and alternative facts in which black is white, up is down, and reality is up for grabs. George Orwell, in fact, was the first to identify this problem in his classic Politics and the English Language uh, in 1946. In the essay, Orwell explained that political language, quote, is designed to make lies sound truthful and consists largely of, quote, euphemisms, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Now, a little aside here. When I was doing my work uh, for the insurance industry, I celebrated a birthday, and one of my colleagues gave me a little framed quote, be obscure clearly. Uh, And it's something that um, E.B. White actually wrote. And I became pretty darn good at obscuring clearly. It's done frequently by, by practitioners. 
But a fake news and alternative facts is not a new phenomenon, and popular writers like Orwell identified the problem a long time ago. Why do people still believe them? Uh, well, there's several factors at work. One is cognitive simplicity. In general, when our brains process information, belief comes quickly and naturally. Skepticism is slow and unnatural, and most people have a low tolerance for ambiguity. Research shows that when we process and comprehend a statement, our brain automatically accepts it as true, whereas the subsequent skepticism of the statement requires an extra cognitive step, which is a heavier load to lift. It's easier to just believe it and move on. Second is cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the uncomfortable tension that comes from holding two conflicting thoughts at the same time. It's easier to dispute the facts than to alter one's deepest beliefs. Creationists, for example, challenge the evidence for evolution not for scientific reasons, but because they fear if it's true, then they have to give up their religion. Climate deniers don't dispute the data from tree rings, ice cores, and the rapid increase of greenhouse gases out of scientific curiosity, but because they're afraid that if it's true, it might mean more restrictive government regulations on business and industry. You could find many other examples. Again, we're all susceptible to these, regardless of whether we're on the left or the right of the political divide. Another is backfire effect. Cognitive simplicity and dissonance leads to a peculiar phenomenon in which people seem to double down on their beliefs in the teeth of overwhelming evidence against them. This is called the backfire effect. In a series of experiments by Dartmouth College, subjects were given fake newspaper articles that confirmed widespread misconceptions, such as the existence of WMDs in Iraq. When subjects were then given a corrective article that WMDs were never found, Liberals who opposed the war accepted the new article and rejected the old, whereas conservatives who supported the war did the opposite. And more, they reported being even more convinced that there were WMDs after the correction, arguing that this only proved that Saddam Hussein hid or destroyed them. Uh, In the real world, when WMDs were, were not found, liberals who supported the war declared that they had never supported the war, and conservatives who supported the war insisted that there were WMDs. And then there's this final of the four, tribal unity. And I think this is very important. We are a social primate species, and we want to signal to others that we can be trusted as a reliable group member. This means being consistent in agreeing with our other group members, whether that group is our political party or our religious faith, that we will not stray too far from our group's core beliefs. Thus, cognitive simplicity and cognitive dissonance may have an evolutionary adaptive purpose, as the social psychologist Carol Tavris outlined in a recent statement. And this is what she wrote. When you find any cognitive mechanism that appears to be universal, such as the ease of creating us-them dichotomies, ethnocentrism, uh, like my group is best, or prejudice, it seems likely that it has an adaptive purpose. And these examples, binding us to our tribe would be the biggest benefit. In the case of cognitive dissonance, the benefit is functional, the ability to reduce dissonance to what lets us sleep at night and maintain our behavior, secure that our beliefs, decisions, and actions are the right ones. The fact that people who cannot reduce dissonance usually suffer mightily, whether over a small but dumb decision or because of serious harm inflicted on others, 
is itself evidence of how important the ability is to reduce it. Ultimately, we are all responsible for what we believe, and it's incumbent on us to be our own skeptics of fake news and alternative facts. Uh, When in doubt, doubt. And I couldn't agree more. So fake news is prevalent. It's a problem that we will probably always be addressing because whether we call it that or propaganda, uh, it'll always be with us. But we just need to be discerning and skeptical and critical thinkers as best we can do. And we, I think for our children, for all of us, we need to have ways in which we can learn how to do that and learn the tools and techniques of critical thinking. Now I'm going to shift gears and talk about the role that the news media plays or doesn't play in our our lives and how it's changed over recent years. When I was a reporter, again, in in my first career, uh, and I did some research on this for Deadly Spin, there were more reporting positions than there were PR jobs during that time. It's flipped, and it's, it's not even close anymore. A lot of reporters have lost their jobs, and a lot of reporters like me went into PR work. So there's a huge imbalance now. I'm going to read a bit from Deadly Spin and quote another Tennessean who uh, I admire a great deal. He's from not too far from here in Greenville, Tennessee. His family published the Greenville Sun. His name is Alex Jones. Uh, He went on to the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize, and from there he went to Harvard where he headed the uh, Shorenstein Center there. He wrote a book in 2009 called Losing the News, which I thought was just extraordinary and very insightful. He contends in his book that American journalism is under attack. He believes that the primary culprit is the same fuel that drives every other enterprise in the country, and that's money. With the number of traditional news outlets on the decline, primarily because of dwindling circulation and advertising revenue, Jones has deep concerns that news may someday become available only to those who are willing and able to pay for it. Spin, of course, will remain freely available and hard to miss. And I'm afraid that's increasingly true. Toward the end of my career in the industry, well, I'd say at the beginning of my time as serving as a chief spokesman for the company and handling financial information, I got calls from reporters all over the country, uh, certainly where Cigna had, was doing business. Toward the end of that time, by 2008, about the only reporters who were left who were calling me were reporters with Bloomberg, Dow Jones, and Reuters. Those reporters were writing specifically for Wall Street, for investors and financial analysts who have the means to pay for uh, and pay a great deal. Most of the, that journalism that they produced wasn't even available to uh, regular folks. Uh, it went to the terminals of analysts who were willing to pay thousands of dollars for that news and information. It's, it's a problem. You may be familiar with Politico, which covers politics in Washington. It has Politics Pro, which has content that's available only to people who are willing and able to spend hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars for access to that. Uh, kind of a spinoff, uh, one a new media organization uh, that some of the founders of Politico started earlier this year, maybe last year, is called Axios. Uh, their goal, as stated, is to have uh, subscribers who are willing to pay $10,000 a year for Axios content. So it's becoming a problem in that uh, news and information is becoming increasingly available to those who've got money and are willing to pay for it. And a lot of the journalism that's written is written specifically for well-heeled audiences. 
this concept is disturbingly similar to that of health care being accessible only to those who have the resources to pay what the market demands. Quoting Jones, he wrote in uh, Losing the News, we may be headed for a world in which there is as yawning a disparity in accurate knowledge as there is in wealth. He continued that the elite will be deeply informed and there will be a huge difference between what they know and what most other Americans know. We could be heading for a well-informed class at the top and a broad populace awash in opinion, spin, and propaganda. That's not good news. Continue on just briefly reading from Deadly Spin and again quoting and referring to uh, Alex Jones' work. He described news as a multi-layered sphere. At the center is an iron core of information, with a vast majority of it coming from traditional news organizations. Information in the core encompasses fact-based local, national, and international news, which Jones calls accountability news, because its purpose is to hold accountable those people in power in both government and business whose decision-making and actions drive events. Traditional journalists, Jones wrote, uh, have long believed that the form of fact-based accountability news is the essential food supply of democracy, and that without enough of this healthy nourishment, democracy will weaken, sicken, and even fail. Uh, In Jones' news sphere, this iron core is surrounded by a thick layer of talk and opinion, and I've been among them, as I admitted, I've been one of those talking heads on cable news uh, more more times than I care to to admit, which derives from the core news. In other words, advocacy information. Every talk show, radio commentary, crowd-rousing speech, and letter to the editor depends on a basic core of information that's provided by objective news reporting. Jones contends that the decline of core reporting means that commentary has drifted further and further from factual news. There will be a bounty of talk, the news of assertion, but serious news reported by professional journalists is running scared. He went on to say that the biggest worry of those concerned about the news is that this iron core is in jeopardy, largely because of the troubles plaguing the newspaper business. It's the nation's newspapers that provide the vast majority of iron core news. My own estimate is that 85% of professionally reported accountability news comes from newspapers, but I have heard guesses from credible sources that go as high as 95%. While people may think they get their news from television or the web, uh, when it comes to this kind of news, it's almost always newspapers that have done the actual reporting. Uh, And I will say I I think it's important that that he used the past tense there because we're seeing accountability reporting diminish, uh, and it's diminishing here in Knoxville uh, and all across the country. When I was covering the Tennessee legislature, the press room was just a buzz with reporters, reporters from all over the state. Even Johnson City had a, a stringer, a national correspondent. The Knoxville News Sentinel had two. The Commercial Appeal had a couple of people. Now, the Commercial Appeal, one of the largest in the state, and the News Sentinel, there's no one that is covering specifically for those papers. And this has been over time, but uh, certainly with the acquisition of the newspapers uh, by Gannett, things have changed considerably. I was in Nashville earlier this week, and I met with some journalists there. I have not been in the Tennessean newsroom. As you probably know, Gannett now owns the Tennessean as well, too. So they they reach across the state. They also own some smaller papers. And they have monitors in the newsroom, I'm told. Uh, and the monitors display which stories that uh, have been written and published 
and are seen primarily online are most read. Reporters are seeing constantly which stories seem to be read most. And of course, this drives news decisions. A lot of what's read uh, is entertainment stuff, it's fluff stuff, it's sports. Uh, And some of the accountability news, if it's done at all, usually doesn't rise to the top. Sometimes it's not quite as entertaining as the other stuff. That's problematic when you've got, I will use the term clickbait again, the articles that are written are often are written in a way that they will attract eyeballs and they share that information with advertisers and that is what has happened to journalism these days. It's, it's really quite a different world. Gannett, uh, it's a for-profit company. It's traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Like Cigna and the other companies I work for, it reports quarterly earnings every three months. Companies like that they answer primarily to shareholders. But it, it's having detrimental effects on, on accountability news and the coverage that we have access to. Uh, this story is from the March 28th edition of Nashville Scene. Uh, you may have seen a similar story here. The headline is, Gannett slashes staffs at Tennessee Papers a year after acquiring Scripps Papers, cuts in Memphis, Knoxville, and Nashville. What's suffering often is uh, local coverage and, and national coverage. Some very big papers have dropped the frequency with which they're producing print editions. And uh, I was going to buy a new Sentinel today, and I I didn't do it. But I saw the Tennessean when I was down there. And uh, what passes for national content is just kind of, I think it's the B section or the A section of USA Today. That's just... That's, that's the problem, folks. Uh, the, what you're missing, I mean, the, the, the New Sentinel no longer has a job like I had, which was covering events in Washington or Nashville, for that matter, uh, specifically for Knoxville readers and writing analysis pieces to help people understand a bit more what's going on in, a, in providing context. That doesn't exist anymore. The Scripps Howard Bureau that I worked in doesn't even exist anymore. And, of course, Scripps Howard has sold his papers, and the company that survived E.W. Scripps is largely in broadcasting, but it's an entirely different world. And it's not limited to Gannett. It's, it's everywhere. The New York Times, just this week, there was a story. This is from one of the rival papers in New York, the New York Post. The headline is 100 Except Buyout Packages from New York Times, quote, death panels. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the New York Times death panels have concluded their work. A media link has learned, and as of 5 p.m. on the July 20 deadline, it appeared that 100 employees at the Gray Lady uh, have accepted voluntary buyout packages and are leaving the building. Aside from the complete elimination of the title of copy editor, which is stunning, and layoffs of many holding that job, the Times offered buyouts to a limited number of reporters, photographers, and design people, according to Grant Glickson, president of the News Guild of New York, who is still tallying the final numbers at press time on Thursday. There's no word on whether the number will satisfy Times management or whether involuntary layoffs will follow. Uh, The Times declined to comment on the process, which is interesting because Gannett and the Times, and uh, they're supposedly uh, reporters of news, but when it comes to the way that they they conduct their own business, they're they're often uh, very quiet and refusing to comment. How voluntary the buyout packages really were is subject to some debate as well. Well, there was one other thing I wanted to share with you. Uh, This is specifically about for-profit journalism. It's a concept called mega-clustering. And the headline from this 
article from The Street, which is a Wall Street publication. It's really quite interesting. And I encourage you all to read. It's probably asking a lot, but if you can follow companies' earnings reports and read financial publications like this, you'll learn a lot about how how these companies really operate. Uh, This story is really quite eye-opening. It says, People in the newspaper industry increasingly joke about the the triumvirate of gatehouse media, digital first media, and Gannett taking over the bulk of the country's 1,350 daily newspapers as conglomerate, uh, as if they were combined, Gannett, Gatehouse, and and, uh, digital first media. Today, those three companies own a full quarter of the nation's dailies as family-run operations dwindle and final generations of newspaper-owning families look for the exits before the passageway becomes too narrow. At the 25% level, uh, we may seem like a long way from such a conglomeration, but a a newer phenomenon called mega-clustering moves the industry closer in that direction. This is a quote, take industries from pesticides to breweries to sporting goods where consolidation of maturing industries has made some people lots of money. In centralizing and regionalizing every operation they can, as Gannett is doing uh, in Tennessee, consolidators manage to cut costs aggressively and make consistent profits. Bigger chains now embrace that strategy with more fervor as the pace of newspaper property sales have quickened. Further, with potential to likely changes in federal strictures on combined broadcast and print ownership and of changes in antitrust regulation itself, this phenomenon deemed mega-clustering is uh, likely to become even greater. So it looks like, uh, from a regulatory point of view, it's likely to become easier for these big media companies to become even bigger. Prototypical of mega-clustering is a roll-up strategy of Gatehouse, the newspaper operating arm of New Media Investment Group, Inc., a company managed by Fortress Investment Group, LLC. Gatehouse now operates more newspaper titles than any other company in the U.S. or the globe, owning 130 dailies and hundreds of community publications. It has perfected the mega-cluster profit-squeezing discipline. Twelve dailies and more than 125 weekly publications make up its New England mega-cluster in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island, dominating the region uh, as never before. In Ohio, uh, using three acquisitions over the past 10 years, Gatehouse operates nine dailies and more than 40 weekly publications. Uh, Just last month, uh, Hearst completed its own mega-cluster in Connecticut. The, the media giant now owns a majority of the dailies in that state, seven of 13, and may have its sights on others, including uh, the state's largest paper, the Hartford Current. What's driving this newer trend? As smaller dailies increasingly share the nearly double-digit print and loss woes with their metro cousins, they're, they've pruned here and there, but it's no longer enough to secure the same level of profit. Uh, That's true of those big chains, and it's true of the remaining smaller family chains and individual operators. So we're in challenging times, I think, in journalism. And uh, as I've noted before, I've decided to try to create a new nonprofit journalism organization called Tarbell. And the website is tarbell.org. It's named after Ida Tarbell, who was an early 20th century investigative reporter whose, whose reporting was very impactful. It led to some important antitrust and campaign finance laws and to the breakup of John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company. So we want to do something similar uh, in this century. 
uh, our reporting will focus on money and politics, but it will not be focused so much on the politicians as it will on those who are able to write the checks to influence politicians and elections and public policy. Uh, we'll be focusing on the behavior of my old company or companies, Cigna and Humana and Gannett, uh, all the big companies that have enormous power and are consolidating. There's been a huge amount of consolidation in the insurance industry among hospitals around the country. But there's not a lot of accountability reporting and not, not a lot of exposure or reporting about how those companies actually behave. As I said before, most of the reporting that's done is reporting that's done by reporters in New York who write for Wall Street. So we want to try to bring back some of the reporting that's been disappearing. It'll be a blend of investigative reporting and solutions journalism. We want to help people understand that our problems are not intractable. We can solve them. But it will require people being more informed, more engaged, and having access to the news on which to base decisions and to become involved. We also want to help people become more civically engaged to understand how they can participate more actively in the democratic process, whether that's finding out where to vote and partnering with organizations like the League of Women Voters and others to help people understand how to become good citizens and good voting citizens, but also being familiar with issues locally and nationally. We also are doing this, again, on a nonprofit basis. We are not going to be accepting advertising. We don't want to find ourselves in a similar situation that the newspapers are finding themselves in that have long been dependent on advertising revenue. And make no mistake, advertisers absolutely have a bearing on content, what's covered and what's not covered. One reporter who even worked for Bloomberg uh, told me that his editors actually squashed uh, or spiked a story that he had been working on about one major insurance company because management felt that uh, the company might pull its advertising. We also want to, as part of Tarbell, to, uh, to create something that I would love to Uh, maybe a pilot here in Knoxville. We're calling it the Tarbell Institute. I'm reading a bit from how we're describing this. Uh, uh, The Tarbell Institute will augment the effectiveness of Tarbell's reporting by helping readers develop the capacity and the tools to extract and analyze data they need to address problems in their communities. The Institute will facilitate collaborative partnerships among community groups and educational institutions to promote the civic awareness, media literacy, and computational fluency that people need to be full participants in 21st century democracy. I would love for Tarbell to to be able to partner with the library, with the University of Tennessee, and other groups locally to to pull something like this off. I think it's very very needed, and I, I think that we would get support for something like this. I'll end on that. Mary Palm, what do you think? This conversation is going to go on for a long time, and we're going to continue it. Thank you, Wendell. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.